This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. On this episode, we'll wrap up our multi-episode series exploring the origin stories of the Japanese luxury car brands. And this week, we're going to explore a brand that few people are familiar with because it was canceled before it launched, so it never made it to market. And in the past episodes, we've already covered the three brands that did make it to market, Acura, Lexus, and Infinity. And this week, we'll cover the abandoned fourth luxury brand, Amati. And so if you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this miniseries, I highly recommend going back and listening through the Acura, Lexus, and Infinity episodes so you have the appropriate context surrounding Amati. And in addition, because Amati never made it to the marketplace, there's not a lot of historical documentation about the brand and its story. So the best source out there that I could find is Raphael Orlov's 2018 piece on Jalopnik about the brand, where he had the chance to interview many of the individuals directly involved in the launch and eventual abandonment of Amati. So I highly recommend reading this article if you're intrigued and you want more details about the brand and what they were up to, and I relied pretty heavily on his article for what we're about to discuss in this podcast. There's a link in the show notes for this episode with a link to this article, so wander over there if you're interested. So before we talk about Amati, it's important for us to talk about its parent company, Mazda. So compared with its Japanese peers, Mazda is a pretty small automaker. As a frame of reference, using the most recent comprehensive list of automaker rankings by production volumes from 2017, Toyota ranked first, Nissan excluding Renault and Mitsubishi ranked sixth, and Honda ranked seventh. In comparison, Mazda ranked 17th on this list, just ahead of Dongfeng Motors and behind Chang'an Motors, both of which are Chinese automakers, primarily focused on the Chinese domestic market. So Mazda is a fraction of the size of the other big Japanese automakers that tried a luxury car. But it didn't stop the company from being interested in this business, and the 1980s setting made luxury cars a very attractive business, especially given the U.S.-Japanese trade tensions that we've covered on previous episodes. So Mazda tried it. The other unique thing about Mazda is that the company had a large foreign shareholder. So from 1974 to 2015, Ford held a 25 to 33% ownership stake in Mazda, and the two automakers often worked together on various projects, especially for the U.S. market. So beginning in the late 1980s, flush with profits and Japan's economy in full swing, and with some stable ownership, Mazda began investigating the launch of a luxury car brand. But they started their project later than Toyota, Honda, and Nissan. So Toyota, Honda, and Nissan started their projects in the early or mid-1980s, but Mazda didn't start investigating a U.S. luxury car division until 1988, under the title Project Pegasus. And this was in full swing just as Mazda launched the incredibly successful and iconic Miata in 1989. So during 1989, witnessing the success of the Miata, Mazda realized that they could make a car that customers wanted to pay a lot of money for. So the Miata at the time was extremely popular and was a relatively premium car for the Mazda product portfolio since it was a sports car. So Mazda decided to commit even more resources to Pegasus, and they appointed a full-time executive called Dick Colliver and gave him a large team of Mazda USA individuals to work on this new brand, which they were planning to call Amati. 
And this group got to work right away. So they did a lot of research on the U.S. market, what luxury consumers wanted, and they started working on a big portfolio of three different sedans that were all going to hit the market at once during the mid-1990s. And so while Dick Colliver and his team were working on the marketing and the branding, Mazda assigned a large team of engineers in Japan to design and engineer the new cars, which were going to be three different sedans unrelated to anything that was being made at Mazda at the time. And these sedans would be designed to take on the top tier European and Japanese competitors, specifically Lexus, BMW, and Mercedes-Benz. Mazda even already set aside a factory that was going to be exclusive to this brand and produce each of the three sedans. So with engineering in full swing, Dick Colliver and his team put together a plan and they started signing up dealers to sell Amati. So they put together all these brand processes, all, all the different ways that they would work with dealers to sell the car and market the car. And in contrast to Honda, Toyota, and Nissan, Mazda had actually decided that existing Mazda dealers could apply for an Amati franchise. So Mazda dealers would have a Mazda store and then have like an Amati section of the showroom or an Amati corner of the showroom and they could sell the cars out of there. So 67 Mazda dealers signed up for Amati in 1991 and Amati went ahead and announced itself to the world saying that they were planning to sell cars beginning in 1994. And the timing of this launch is critical. So recall that Lexus and Infiniti both hit the market in 1989, and Acura had hit the market in 1986. But Amati wasn't scheduled to arrive until 1994, so this was five years after Lexus and Infiniti, and eight years after Acura. And that five to eight year window becomes critical. Because as the Amati team in the U.S. started ramping up its marketing plans and advertising budgets and purchases, and the Japanese team started getting ready to produce the cars, 1991 brought a Japanese stock market crash that took the Japanese economy with it. And so suddenly Mazda couldn't borrow money anymore, and Japanese stocks were way down, and car sales in Japan took a dive, and Mazda started losing a lot of money very suddenly. And unrelated to the Japanese financial crisis of 1991, the U.S. also entered a brief recession around the same time, And this made selling luxury cars in the U.S. suddenly incredibly challenging, especially now that we had three more brands chasing luxury car shoppers. So during the early 1990s, we actually saw the departure of some European luxury brands from the U.S. marketplace. So we saw uh, British Rover Group drop the Sterling brand, which, if you'll recall, was a car that was co-developed with Acura. And we also saw the exit of Peugeot and Alfa Romeo from the U.S. market. So with the U.S. luxury car market starting to soften, Amati was in trouble. And to add further fuel to the fire, Mazda had already spent a large sum of money, several billion dollars, to develop a wide range of products for the booming Japanese market of the 1980s. And the company had vastly overextended itself in Japan and the U.S., which brought with it a huge laundry list of quality issues for even mainstream Mazdas. So the company didn't have that much resources for Amati to begin with, and the 1991 Japanese stock market crash made things even worse because it made it very difficult for Mazda to borrow money. Set against all this, though, Amati had already started picking up some of its momentum, and the brand had planned out so much for its cars because the company was really close to launch, so the engineers in Japan were putting the finishing touches on at least two new products. The Americans had Designs picked out for dealerships and marketing planned for a national blitz that was going to coincide with the launch of the flagship Amati 1000. 
And the Amati 1000 was rumored to be a Lexus LS400 competitor with a V12 engine. And the rumor mill suggested Amati had two other cars planned. The Amati 500, which was going to be a mid-sized luxury car to compete against the BMW 5 Series. And the Cosmo, a luxury two-door sports coupe to compete with the Lexus SC. But in late 1992, none of this was going to see the light of day. So even though Amati had already gotten so close to the finish line, Mazda was quickly running out of money and time. So Mazda officially chose to shut down the Amati project. And the story goes that Dick Colliver was the one responsible for pulling the plug because he realized how much money Amati was going to need to make it to its 1994 launch and the duo the launch right, and he realized that Mazda didn't have the money. And so the decision to close Amati was so last minute that the Amati 500 had actually already entered production in Japan, and Mazda had to scramble to figure out what to do with these cars that were headed for a brand that had already closed. So in the U.S., Mazda eventually decided to sell the Amati 500 as the Mazda Millennia, and decided to completely decontent the car and position it as a Nissan Maxima competitor. Mazda added the Millennia to their lineup at the last minute in 1993 that many of Mazda's 1994 brochures showed the Millennia haphazardly added to pictures of Mazda's full lineup at the end, which clearly showed the Millennia as the kind of a red-headed stepchild of the Mazda brand. And Mazda threw away all the plans for the Amati 1000 and the Cosmos, and all the work they had put into developing a unique V12 engine for the Amati 1000 were completely thrown away. They never used it. And in the U.S., the marketing budget was already set aside, contracts were signed with advertising agencies, and branding material was printed and ready to go. All this marketing material, all these dealer process manuals, these all went in the trash. So they had spent all this time from the late 1980s until 1993 kind of researching and planning and threw it all out in the end. And the only remnant left of Amadi was actually the Millennia itself. And so Dick Colliver noted that the Millennia was a really decontented version of what they had planned for Amadi. And even at the time in 1994, it was known for having particularly good build quality and very nice materials. And so we can kind of let the mind wander about what the Amadi 500 would have felt like if it had actually made it to production in 1994. And Mazda USA actually chose to make fun of themselves because in those early marketing materials for the millennia, Mazda noted that they put all this money into the car and not into a luxury division and all that overhead. And they printed it on the ad, which was really ironic because the millennia only existed because Mazda ran out of money to get Amadi out the door. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. So after the Amati team had taken the Amati 500 and made it the Mazda Millennia by 
putting in cheaper seats, a cheaper suspension, and lower quality interior materials. Dick Colliver, the U.S. head of Amati, laid off everybody involved, and he himself left Mazda in 1993 and took an early retirement from the company. So in his interviews with Jalopnik, he remarked that they had done so much research in the late 1980s that they had, quote, researched themselves out of a job. And Mazda, in an effort to save itself, saw an emergency injection of capital from Ford. And this is how we went from a 25% to a 33% ownership stake that Ford held in 1996. Ford also sent some of its own executives to try to turn Mazda around because Mazda had gotten itself into quite a deep pickle with Amadi and their rapid over-expansion during the 1980s. Dick Colliver himself, however, as he was leaving Amadi, he took all of Amadi's plans for dealers. So everything that had gone in, into the trash, he figured that Mazda didn't want it anyway, and he took it with him. And eventually, he took all this information about how you work with dealers, how you run customer marketing, and how you develop a brand. He took it to his next job. So he retired early from Mazda, but he went to Honda, and he ran Honda and Acura until 2009, guiding Honda through through the financial crisis of 08 and helping to build Honda's consistency and reputation amongst car shoppers. So a lot of Amadi's legacy lives on in this very consistent Honda customer experience. So if you go to see a Honda dealer, they're all kind of the same in, in the sense they kind of have this bright blue and white layout, and um, they all have the same font, and the employees all kind of have the same name tags there. And so a lot of that can be credited to Dick Colliver and his time at Amadi. And the legacy of Amadi ran deep at Mazda, and it was one of those things that was very painful for Mazda to admit that it couldn't get this done. And I think the worst part of it for Mazda was they had announced to the world that that they were coming in 1991 and then just unceremoniously had to pull the plug within a year or two. And so after Amadi, Mazda didn't really quite take as many risks as it did during the 1980s. And they went back to focusing on their core products of fun to drive, affordable sedans, and the Miata. And um, Amadi is such a touchy sh- subject amongst the Japanese executives at Mazda that in all of the Mazda heritage museums and all the Mazda kind of official histories, there's no mention of Amadi or the Amadi exper- experiment at all. So it, they just went through and just completely erased this chapter of the company's life from history. And so that's also part of why there's not a ton of information out there because Mazda themselves didn't keep a lot of archives relating to Amadi. And so reports at the time, though, suggested that Mazda burned about $400 million in 1992 dollars to get Amadi as far along as they did. And they didn't have the $50 million that Dick Colliver wanted to get into showrooms and out the door. So um, Mazda was so close, and it's still one of the hotly debated topics among some car enthusiasts today was whether Amadi could have made it had they gotten to the starting line. And um, there's a lot of conflicting opinions on this because by 1994, the luxury car market had gotten really competitive. Lexus and Acura had gotten really good. Infiniti was around. And Mercedes and BMW had also gotten much better and more competitive in order to respond to the threat from the other Japanese automakers. And so... There was always kind of this sense of doubt that Mazda could pull off something like this, and 
Some people would argue that yanking the plug when they did actually maybe saved the larger company, and some people think that Amati might have worked. If they had just doubled down and gone all in, uh, maybe the brand would have been able to make it. So it's hard to say because they pulled the plug, but it's one of those kind of little corners of history that are really interesting. And so, and it had profound effects on Mazda. So um, they they stopped really taking a lot of risks d- during the 1990s, and so they basically missed the beginning of the SUV boom. Um, they partnered with Ford for su- for some SUVs to respond, but they didn't respond to the SUV boom until 2001. And this was five years after Honda and Toyota had gotten into the SUV game themselves. And so they introduced the Tribute in 2001, which was a rebadged Ford Escape. And they didn't develop their own homegrown SUV until the 2007 CX-7. And so by this point, Honda and Toyota each had several SUVs in their lineup. And um, they haven't really started branching out until more recently when Mazda has actually begun trying to move itself up market, sort of filling the void left behind by Amati. But instead of creating a new brand, which they realized was too expensive, they're trying to do this by making their existing cars more luxurious and stylish to appeal to higher-end shoppers. And Mazda's efforts to move up market have largely worked. I mean, there was a New York Times piece recently that said Mazda buyers are far more likely to be college-educated, have high incomes, and be younger buyers under the age of 40. And so, in some ways, the Amadi legacy has shown Mazda that they don't have to be a luxury brand to make premium cars. But that's a divergent topic to talk about Mazda more generally. Focusing back specifically on the Amadi legacy, the lasting legacy of Amadi is really going to be that of a very small automaker who dreamed very big things, had made plans to pursue very big things, and busted out. Which, it's rare to see such kind of high-profile failures in the car business like this, and so I think that's what makes Amadi so fascinating to many people who are car enthusiasts, because it's this high-profile failure where there's not a lot of history and documentation that was retained about it, because Mazda went straight to work, completely erasing the brand, from its history. And so um, really only Dick Colliver and a small group of American employees that worked on Amadi even acknowledged the brand existed and kind of what the fallout was. And so Dick Colliver, his legacy was always doing all of this work for Amadi and then just being cut off right before launch and then taking all of that work and applying it to Honda. And so it's actually very interesting to see that some of what the executive team learned at Amati wound up benefiting a competing automaker. And um, also a fun fact about Amati is that the name Amati is an anagram of Miata, which is Mazda's highly iconic and successful two-seat roadster. Um, Mazda said that this was not intentional and that they did not, this was not how they came up with the name Amati, but it's unclear if this was truly unintentional or if it was intentional. So just another fun tidbit there for you about Amadi and how it ties to the rest of Mazda. And so what happened to the millennia, kind of the last vestiges of Amadi, at least in the United States? So Mazda sold the millennia from 1995-ish to 2002, and they did some mild updates throughout its life cycle, but didn't really do too much. And the car didn't really sell that well, because it was kind of anonymous looking compared to its peers, the Nissan Maxima and 
Acura TL. And so customers primarily gravitated towards the Acura TL, the Maxima, and the Lexus ES instead. And that kind of left the millennia a bit forgotten and a bit of a wallflower in the entry-level luxury car business. And so um, actually, in I think in a 2001 or 2002 review and a comparison test between all the entry-level luxury cars at the time, the millennia came in dead last. And so after 2002, what Mazda did was they combined the 626, which was their midsize sedan, and the millennia, and they collapsed it into one car called the Mazda 6, which the Mazda 6 did really well. It was known as this really sporty, fun-to-drive family sedan that was really affordable. And so in essence, um, the millennia was just this kind of afterthought for the Mazda division. And it's unclear if this car would have done better had it had the full Amati treatment. Um, and that's something that we'll never know. But the Millennia certainly itself didn't do super well in the marketplace. But um, a lot of people do have fond memories of them if you read kind of some of the online chatter about the car. So tying our series together about the Japanese luxury car brands. So we've looked at Acura, Infiniti, Lexus, and Amati. And we've talked about the different strategies and decisions that each of the parent companies made that perhaps led to their fates today. So we talked about how Honda didn't have a lot of expertise building luxury cars, and they partnered with a different automaker to get their product out the door and to get their product out the door fast. We talked about Lexus's big upfront investment and careful consideration of what American luxury car buyers wanted and how that led to the gangbuster successful LS400. And we talked about how Infinity was launched kind of with as small of a budget as possible to try to minimize the incremental cost of breaking into the U.S. market and how Infinity was most famous for its incredibly quirky advertising campaigns. We also talked about how timing becomes really critical and how Mazda was just a few years too late to the game and how those few years can make a huge difference in the success of a brand and being able to get to the starting line. So... I hope this series has given you some insight into how the Japanese luxury car brands came to be and more generally the thought processes that go into developing a new brand and how decisions made early on in the brand creation process can have implications for a really long time. So after the three Japanese luxury car brands were introduced in the early 1990s, we didn't see another introduction of a U.S. luxury car brand until we saw Tesla in the late 2000s and Genesis also in the late 2000s or early 2010s, depending on where you put the starting line for Genesis, which is Hyundai Kia's premium brand. So we don't see this happen too often in the car business where somebody launches an all-new luxury brand. It's, it's a lot of work and it requires a lot of money, as, as I'm sure Hyundai Kia is learning about now. But in future episodes, we'll probably pivot away from talking about brands for a little bit since um, I'd like to mix it up and talk about some different topics. So feel free to write in with any listener questions you have and hope you enjoyed this series. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast. And so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On. And our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. 
Thank you for listening to our show, and make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.